You said in the telegram that Dad's life is in danger. I'm afraid it is. You see, he's been getting uh, phone calls for two weeks now, demanding we sell out. Really? From whom? Loan sharks? Maybe. We don't know yet. And Dad? He wants to fight him, single-handed, which is what happened the other night. And the police didn't do anything, right? Right. What are their demands? Very simple. Sell out or be killed. Oh, do they have a fight on their hands? Re-re-reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhood Podcast. Greetings, starfighters, ass-kickers, and name-takers. This is Ruined Childhoods, and we have left the land of Oz and made our way to the Bluegrass State. On this episode, during our cinematic journey across America, we're in the state famous for baseball bats, fried chicken, and horse racing. Those who visit the state enjoy its bourbon, tobacco, and moonshine. If you're visiting the state, check out the Kentucky Derby Museum in Louisville, the Mammoth Cave and Mammoth Cave National Park, but be careful if you visit Bowling Green or you may be massacred there. That's right, we're in (laughs) Kentucky this week talking Sheba Baby. Dan, this movie has boats and Kentucky has horses. Do you think there are more boats or horses named Sheba? New, new, New listeners, this is one of my favorite things to do. Go on. I am going to go with horses. Okay, so I will tell you that there are registered 35 boats named Sheba, and that includes ones that are like Lady Sheba or Miss Sheba or Queen of Sheba, the Sheba, Sheba star. Horses, there's 96 of them. So yeah, uh, yeah, uh, three times the amount basically of uh, horses than there are boats, but that's not surprising. I mean, Sheba feels like a good horse name to me. I mean, are there any horses actually named Sheba Baby? Because that I looked and there are not. Makes sense. Okay, I could see that. Yeah, I guess if someone was a big enough fan of this film. Yeah, I mean, let me check again. Sheba Baby. I'm on allbreedpedigree.com, my favorite source for horse names. And no, there's there's no Sheba baby horses and boats for that matter. Well, maybe one of these days I'm going to buy a horse. I'm going to name it Sheba baby. Oh, I'll be the first. You'll be the only. There we go. Unless oh. somebody does it before. Probably somebody. It, it could very well happen. Before. I don't know when I would buy a horse. Yeah. But. I, I guess don't know. maybe we'll find out. Who knows what tomorrow holds? This is true. This is we're in a Probably brand new a horse, year. Though. Anything is possible. It's 2024. I could be giddy up in my way to work on Friday. That's true. That'd be very strange, but it is true. We're recording on a Wednesday, so I would be buying the horse tomorrow. And of Correct. course, these things only only take a few hours. So There's I a lot of paperwork, I imagine. So I don't know if you're planning on having a stable uh, at your house. Yeah, well, nothing at my house is too stable, but oh. uh no, uh, sorry, that one superseded and another one that was come that was like in the pipe and then oh. that one kind of leapfrogged it. 
because I had mm. I had something else ready to go, and now I totally forgot what it was. Okay, it was something. It was, it was about. Uh, oh yes, let me see that I I did ask about the uh, if there was a lot of paperwork involved in buying a horse, and the answer was, nay. Oh god, damn it, Dan. <laughs> I would say that you never disappoint, but that's very disappointing. So. I would say I consistently disappoint, which is that, which means that I don't disappoint. This is the bar is set really low. Well, I think that now is a good time to move on from those shenanigans and talk about the uh, the movie at hand, the movie of the week, Sheba Baby. But before we begin, I want to yep. acknowledge that we, Dan and myself, are not black and cannot speak to the black experience. As I'm sure will come up a little bit uh, throughout this, because you know this is a, an iconic fixture in the uh, in in black exploitation cinema, the uh, you know the the cinematic um, string of movies that happened from like '68 to '78, uh, where things c- cinema really went through a huge shift there, and um, I uh, I have only scratched the surface with my knowledge of uh you know a lot of black exploitation films but also just other films during that time that could be considered you know black cinema well uh i can i can fill you in a little bit i did a little research here so much of what i'm going to be drawing on throughout this episode is coming from the podcast the plot thickens okay which i've referenced before it's a turner classic movies production and they did a whole season about pam greer oh cool and i felt that in addition to watching Sheba Baby, mm-hmm. it, it would really help to have that context and and know more about like because really I mean yes we're here to talk about the movie, but I mean maybe maybe you'll disagree with me, but I I feel like when it comes to the movie itself, there's not too much there to talk about that isn't characteristic of the genre and of other like Pam Greer roles. So I listened and, uh, you know, did a, learned a lot about Pam Greer, not so much about this movie. This movie took about a sentence of Uh the entire podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, and then she did this one that was like the two she did before it. Uh, except that this one took place well, yeah. in Kentucky. Coffee and Foxy Brown are certainly her probably biggest, you know, starring roles in that era. Well, Coffee Because clearly yeah, coffee she's done the, the things well beyond that. So, well, yeah. Right. So, um, I mean, I can go into a little background here and kind of what, like, what brought her to the game. Sure. Uh, I'll also mention, I want to recommend a documentary that I watched called Is That Black Enough For You? that came out last year on Netflix, uh, made by uh, documentarian Elvis Mitchell, who's a film historian and really rallied together an amazing group of people that, that gives a fantastic overview of, you know, the origins of black cinema and spends a lot of time during the, you know, late sixties to late seventies talking about black exploitation cinema and giving some context to that. Um, but, and, and I, I mean, aside from that, I also listened to the audio commentary for Sheba baby with its writer and producer. Uh, your eyebrows are raised. 
Oh, just because I didn't realize I I like where did you find that? <laughs> it's a long story, but I found it. Oh. And uh yeah, you know, I learned a little bit about Pam Greer's I uh, I guess what she brought to Sheba Baby that we can get into in a little bit. But please go on. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you learned during your research. Yeah, so Pam Greer grew up in Colorado. For uh, for the first few years of her life, her family moved around a bit. Her father was in the military. Then her father retired from the military. And uh, after that, pretty much like felt aimless, didn't know how to like be home and left. So, okay. uh, so her mother, uh, so she and her, oh, I'm forgetting the siblings, but they moved to, uh, her grandparents ranch. And so she, she grew up speaking of, of horses, like she grew up around horses. Oh, no way. And, uh, yeah, yeah. It t- tells a story about how one time she was like her grandparents, uh, pasture bordered like where this little, I don't know, like tavern was. Oh, okay. And one time her, her, I guess, grandfather and uncle, like were they like popped into the tavern and she was like hanging at waiting in the car. It does. It's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> uh, okay. Where where it's like they cracked the window and went in and got and got wasted, but as as she was kind of hanging out by the car, she saw there was like this this horse that uh, her grandfather owned, and it was kind of known to be a bit of a, a wild card, and it came up to the fence, and she saw it there, and she recognized it. And uh, like climbed up the fence, climbed and got on the horse, and then Whoa. then the horse, the horse like rode away. Her grandfather and uncle like came out, were looking for her. They didn't know where to where to find her, but uh, her grandfather was so proud that she, you know that that she did that that she that she wasn't afraid. And I think that that whole sense of not being it, it's a great metaphor for her career uh-huh. because. She it's Pam Greer is somebody who took the opportunities that were made available to her and made the most of them. She did not go to Hollywood to become an actress. She went to California to go to UCLA and become a doctor. Oh, and wow. The, the only reason why she went to California was because she had been doing some like beauty pageants uh-huh. and was in, I believe the Miss Colorado pageant. No way. And like was spotted by someone who worked for an agency. And she ended up like this, this, this didn't get her the acting work. Right. She became a, a receptionist. She came to LA and it's everything in all these interviews. All she talks about is I did this so that I could make the tuition to hmm. go to school. Wow. That's what I wanted to do. So she starts as a receptionist. She's working at the talent agency in the mornings, and then she's working as a receptionist at American International Pictures. AIP. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the company that produced Sheba Baby, as well as so many yeah. other like B movies. They were sure. like the big B Low, movies. Lower budget. But I, I yeah. don't know. A- AIP did. I'm going to look up. I want to say that uh, towards the end of their run, I think that they actually came back oh. somewhat recently, but 
I want to say that they had some they, pretty they big did. ones they did. The, towards the end. I mean, I think I, I I think it was like Foxy Brown was was one of their was one of their bigger ones. Let's see. Here's uh, the AIP and, film library, and uh, towards the end we have Amityville Horror in '79, Dressed to Kill, De Palma, um, Mad oh, okay. Max was AIP. Got it. So Got yeah, it. and then I guess they yeah. they have come back in in 2021 um, with a few other ones that I uh, I'm not familiar with. So. She's working there and she she ends up getting uh getting cast in a film that they're shooting like in the Philippines. Okay. And of course cuz all these movies shoot in, in in these like remote places where it's really easy to cheap and it, it really easy really cheap to shoot, maybe not easy. Yeah. Uh so there there it was it was called the 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 Big Doll House. And it was a it was a women in prison movie. Okay. So whole uh, subgenre of, of exploitation movies. So she had a featured role in that, and and this is something that's really indicative of who she is. And when when I say like she takes opportunities and she really takes advantage of them, she didn't. She wasn't just like oh great an all expenses paid trip and I get to go and be in a movie. Right. She like. She said, "What like how do I act?" She never acted before. Mm-hmm. Roger Corman, Roger Corman recommended that she read "An Actor Prepares" by Konstantin Stanislavski, a classic, which is the textbook for method acting. Right? right? Yeah. <laughs> so Pam Greer like reads this book and devotes herself to it. And puts all of this work into these into these roles, these performances in these, you know, like she did a couple and they 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 like she worked so well in the big dollhouse that they had her stay in the Philippines and do another like women in prison movie. Yeah, there's one called Women in Cages. Yes. Yeah. A prison sexploitation film. I think that was the one where it says yeah, it says that she was also in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls just as a party goer. So I wonder if it was just like, a, hey, we need people come and show up. Be in yeah, this thing. might have been. They don't mention that at at all in, in the podcast. I, I can't yeah. imagine that was a major moment for her. her no. credit as party goer. No, I mean, yeah, Sheba Baby barely got any any mention. But it was also at that point, it was just, you know, one in a series. But right so Pam is still doing, uh, so she's doing these movies, doing supporting roles, but really making a good impression. And, um, like the, the director really, like, really likes working with her. And that's, that's gonna come back and, and really mm-hmm. help her out because it's the same director who ends up directing Foxy Brown. And he casts, right. or was it, uh, it coffee, might have been coffee. Uh, but That's Jack, well, Jack Hill is the one who did Foxy Brown. Yes. And, uh, oh, he also did coffee. Yeah. And right. But yeah, so, coffee came first by a year. Right. Yeah. Foxy Brown was kind of the, the re- response to coffee. And it's, uh, well, Foxy Brown was originally supposed to be a sequel to coffee, but I think like last minute they decided like, 
it would be more profitable to, you know, it's, it's all about the, the dollars and everything. So it's just like they changed the name and didn't make her a nurse in this one. I think right. that she, I don't know what her job was in Foxy Brown. I don't know if she had one. Well, she, uh, she's like a vigilante. Right. Well, doesn't she like, she's not a call girl. She's, she masquerades as one, right? Yeah. Because yeah, has a very coffee, similar she's thing a vigilante, going on. She's a vigilante nurse. Yeah. Yes. So. Sorry, now, I get them confused because the two of those are pretty similar. Well, but regardless, design. regardless, these things were huge. And it also, it helped, uh, another, it also helped. And I, I don't know if this is covered in, in the Elvis Mitchell documentary. I haven't seen it yet, but that the black exploitation genre really grew out of the the need to kind of fill these movie houses in big cities that had been built when the big city like when it was all more affluent white people living in yes. the cities and then so they all and then they all flee to the suburbs in you know the 50s 60s and 70s right, so now yeah. you've got a whole other audience to fill these movie houses. So you want to produce things that they are theoretically going to be more interested in. Right. And, and I realize also that, uh, more recently the, you know, the, the name black exploitation kind of has like a badge of honor associated with it. But at the time it was looked upon as, you know, people are being exploited and being paid low wages to be in these movies to appeal to the masses uh, and and make a really easy buck, essentially. And so, you know, at the time, it was definitely something that people were upset about that were in the black communities. And, uh, you know, now it's looked on as kind of this important moment, this important period in cinematic history. Well, right, because it it gave a lot of uh, black people like the the venue to actually be stars like a black woman yep. to be the star of a film who was and right. not not playing a uh, you know the the old quote about Whoopi Goldberg seeing Nichelle Nichols on Star Trek and she ain't playing no maid so yeah no yeah absolutely i i mean there were movies that i think they were called like the southern black exploitation films where it's like if they took place in the south they were about slavery and they did focus on uh, those types of lights but they weren't folk you know the the characters the main characters were not you know uh staff to to white folk to rich white folks oh, but it was and, usually uh, yeah. it was like you know usually oh absolutely revenge. it was revenge and yeah. and it was and that's why so pam greer ends up finding she finds this empowering. And by the way, after she is offered the role in coffee, she realizes that she, she can't be a movie star and go to medical school at, yeah. at the same time. So that's where she kind of makes the choice and says, all right, maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing is to be an actor. Another thing that, you know, that was done really to, I don't know, express empowerment was to kind of flip the script on, uh, what was considered to be standards for beauty. And uh, she, especially in, in Coffee, and let's see, uh, when, what year was Coffee? 
I that was 73. So so 72, 73, you know, 72 is when Superfly comes out and 73 is coffee. And that's when you're starting to see, uh, you know, on screen nudity that is not done in a way that seems like it's exploitative, but it is done in a way where it's like uh, more artful and empowering. And I know that uh, I read this somewhere, I think, in an IMDb trivia quote from some article that, you know, an interview that Pam Greer did where she was saying that she wanted to introduce the world more to, like, the brown nipple and make that, you know, make a statement of that. But in listening to the commentary for uh, for this movie, Sheba Baby, she wanted to, uh, you know, be that empowering character Without the, you know, it the movie having to be, you know, R or X rated as a lot of these movies were. I yeah, I was just looking up when Dolomite came out. <laughs> what when did Dolomite come out? Seventy five. Seventy five. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Dolomite is kind of its own separate thing because it's it's yeah, it, it's well, comedic and yeah, it's its own it, it it's its own subcategory. I think. Yeah, I, I think it is it, it it is the evolution, if we want to call it that, of the black exploitation yeah. genre. Yeah. The, though I would say but, it probably but, reaches its highest form, you know, with films like uh, Foxy Brown and. Well, Shaft. Well, right. Um, movies like Shaft and Superfly, they had much higher budgets, and you can tell, than movie like the AIP films, uh, movies like Coffee, Foxy Brown, Sheba Baby. And, uh, you know, that stuff really shows with, like, you know, there's good lighting and there's better sound, <laughs> oh, and yeah. the sets don't look like they're about to fall apart if the wind blows. And uh, I, I feel like... With a movie like Sheba Baby, you really get distracted by a lot of those things because Pam Greer is just so magnetic. And you you believe her even if the rest of the characters are a little less, I don't know, captivating. Yeah, let, let's just say not everybody uh, read the Stanislavski book <laughs> at American yeah. International. Uh, well, I wonder, <laughs> I do wonder how method she would have gotten. I, I don't know if she considers herself a method actor, but uh, some of her roles are pretty are pretty out there. Well, I mean... They're pretty intense. She does have... I mean, she she has, you know, had experienced uh, some trauma in her past mm -hmm. that she drew upon. She is a sur survivor of sexual assault. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, drew upon that for... Uh, for certain roles in Foxy Brown, there's a uh, pretty uh, graphic assault scene. Yeah, that, absolutely. That, and and co yeah. coffee also is one that I uh, that I mean that one's a little bit more artistic. And the the way that wait is coffee the one where she yeah coffee is the one where her sister yeah coffee is the one with her because Foxy Brown it's her brother the the her brother that narks out. That guy, he like sold the information right. about her, the about her her boyfriend. Her boy, right? Because her boyfriend is a cop in that one, or it's yeah. a yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> well, let's talk. Let's let's focus well, more on Sheba Baby. Should I give a little synopsis? 
uh, you should give a little synopsis, uh, and uh, we we can talk a little bit about Kentucky. We, well, this we is a get, perfect way to get into talking yeah. about Kentucky. All right. Chicago private detective Sheba Shane travels to Louisville after a mobster's thugs rough up her father's insurance and loan business in an effort to pressure him into selling the business at a major loss. With the help of her father's employee, Brick, who is also her ex-lover, Sheba tracks down the men responsible for the threats and picks them off one by one until she discovers the true root of the violence that ultimately led to the unsanctioned death of her father. So... Clearly, Sheba is played by Pam Greer. We have Austin Stoker playing Brick Williams, uh, who we've also seen in Planet of the Apes. Uh, Derville Martin plays Pilot, who's one of the baddies, who's a very comical character. And comical in the sense that it's like, that's the bad guy? Uh, and then we have oh. Rudy Challenger as uh, her father, Andy Shane. Yeah, I, I thought... a much bigger cast, but that's the those are the, the highlights. Yeah, there's another uh, actor who I really liked. He played the character Walker. I, he's one of like Pilot's henchmen. He's the oh, one who, he's yeah, the one yeah, who yeah. she has in the car wash. She takes him in the car wash. Oh, that one's who's extremely comical. Yes, he's like, well if stereotypically you, you know, conjure up a stereotypical image of a pimp. That's what you would kind of see is the like the big hat and the over the top suit and the swagger and he does it in a very over the top way and uh, yeah oh that scene's great with the car wash yeah yeah and it's you know he's uh, like a lot of the performances and just so over the top and, and yeah. like one level to the to the dialogue but i thought he was uh i i, I enjoyed his performance the actor's name uh, i had christopher joy yeah, uh, who didn't? Oh, yeah, didn't mm-hmm. do too much, but I, I thought correct in that he was a uh, he was he was a standout. <laughs> yeah, and so she basically is finding the people that are connected to this guy, and uh, you know, roughs them up to get information out of them, and and he kind of gives up where Pilot Derville Martin's character uh, lives, and you know, he he rats it out he. He spills the beans pretty easily. Oh yeah, well he, he seems... and she still puts it through the ringer. I know, right? <laughs> the hot wax. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, he deserves it. He's scum. Yes. So there's yeah. that. Yeah, she's you know Sheba is totally badass. You uh, absolutely are on her side from second one. Yeah. And uh, I, a lot of the the violence is so over the top and a lot of the dialogue is so over the top but you just buy into the world really easily and uh, it has some just great set pieces some really awesome chases and uh, action set pieces and it really you know it kind of plays like a James Bond movie but instead of you know this you know suave dude from the UK you have this you know Louisville Kentucky Black badass yeah. woman of all. Yeah. So uh, take that, James Bond. You could learn a thing or two from Sheba. Yeah. Well, and uh, it, actually, coincidentally, with, with uh, the with James Bond, I I forget which one, if it was Foxy, if it was Foxy Brown or Coffee. I don't it was not Sheba, baby. But uh, one of them actually ended up 
like the James that year's James Bond movie was the number one movie at the cinemas, and then oh yeah, this one uh, knocked it off the list. It might have been Coffee because I don't think there was a Bond Coffee film really in '74. I remember I the first time I saw Coffee was when I was in college, so this would have been 2003 around there, and I was taking a class about uh, race in cinema. And uh, we watched Coffee, and uh, I remember my jaw was just on the floor. Uh, I was so I loved it so much. I mean, I had seen Shaft before, and I may have seen Superfly. I definitely had seen Shaft. I feel like uh, when I was in high school, there was like a a surge of popularity with Shaft. I think mostly because of Isaac Hayes, and uh, you you know just the the incredible score that he does, and. Uh, I wonder if he was on South Park by then, because that would maybe lead to maybe a little bit more interest in teens at the time. Yeah. Discovering more of his other work. Yeah. He was on South Park from the beginning. From the beginning. Yeah. Which would have been around that time. 97. Yeah. 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 Totally. So Shaft was a huge one and it was... uh, that one I I love. Shaft is so good. Well, also the, the I know re- you you've talked about Shaft a lot before the remake, right? Yeah. And the remake the or remake the, came out in two thousand. So the remake or the the continuation the 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 well, it's a reboot because it's well, it doesn't the the series doesn't continue on really. Wasn't there another one recently? Yeah, there was the one uh, a, a couple of years ago with Shaft's with like all with the all three generations. You had like right because the well because actually it's it's less of a it's more of a reboot oh. because the Samuel L. Jackson character is the nephew of the, of oh. the original Shaft, and then his his son comes in for the yeah, la- for so the last one, who's a cop, Jesse T. Usher as. John J.J. Shaft. Yes. Regina I it was Hall fun. is in that one. That was from 2019. Yeah, so it's funny how the one from 2019 is called Shaft. The yep. one from 2000 is called Shaft. Yep. <laughs> and that nope. one's uh, Samuel L. as John Shaft II. And we got Christian Bale in there. Dude, that, the 2000 Shaft. Jeffrey Wright, Tony Collette, Vanessa Williams. I uh, Oh. Wow. Who like Mackay Pfeiffer? Well, not for very long, but uh, he's in. Ooh, spoiler. Oh, the two thousand. Uh, oh, two thousand one is John Singleton. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never Lynn seen it. Thigpen is in it. Oh, I love it. Jeffrey. Oh, of Wright course, she's is in it. Fantastic in it. I mean, everyone's Jeffrey great Wright, in it. You know, and and it's it's so appropriate to to mention Jeffrey Wright, um, American Fiction. Uh, I don't know if it's been released yet wide, but I wa- I watched the a screener of it, and uh, I I won't say I don't think that it's a, a an amazing amazing movie, but there are some things in it that I absolutely love, and of course Jeffrey Wright is just so good, you know, as this you know very proper intellectual author who uh, in order to exploit other writers who kind of i uh, i don't know 
approach the black experience from a kind of lowest common denominator voice gets all this recognition. And so his <laughs> approach is to, you know, just quickly shit out a book, essentially. That's the same way. And it kind of just takes off and becomes huge. Yeah. Well, and and I haven't seen the movie, but seeing the trailer, it 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 resonated me with me because, uh, you know, especially like especially in the like young adult teen genre and being a high school language arts teacher familiar yeah. with a lot of titles uh there is definitely a like there was there was a real surge in popularity of those of books like the hate you give uh, mm-hmm. which is about the repercussions of police violence. And, you know, it seems when I saw the the trailer and it's, I think the trace is Tracy Ellis Ross, the, uh, she play another, an author. She, she is in it. Yes. Okay. She, uh, she's not another author. Issa Rae is another author. Maybe it was the, it was like when it was an author and she was reading from her work and it was very much like, it was very, it was yeah. like, you know, uh, it, it african-american vernacular english and uh like i loved the approach just because like not necessarily that those books are especially marketed towards white audiences oh yeah who are going to feel that like oh i am if i read this book that gives me some more woke credibility but that uh i could i definitely got that sense from the trailer and just from the little bit that i saw of what first of all like this just seemed i mean jeffrey wright's an actor who can make pretty much anything interesting so but this really felt like like the role of possibly the role of his career (laughs) Well, which is such a that 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 would be a big claim because he's had such incredible roles. In oh the wait, past, but sorry, I'm I, I totally forgot he he was didn't he play was he was he Basquiat? Jeez, he was Basquiat. <laughs> he was Basquiat. Yeah. I was, was just thinking about that. One of his earliest roles. Yeah, Jesus, he, he was, was amazing, amazing as Basquiat. In Basquiat. Yeah, I think a... a lot of people wouldn't remember that. That movie, um, though, is never streaming anywhere. I, I Well, so I have some insight about that. Oh. So uh, when I was programming movies for this theater, I wanted to program Basquiat. I, I was working for an art museum. That's where this theater was. It just made sense to kind of go into that, into that world a little bit. And uh, the rights to that movie, the distribution for that movie is owned by, is it? Oh, it's Julian Schnabel. Yes. Uh, yeah. So he owns the rights to it. And I tried reaching out to like his assistant. I went down all of these different paths to uh, try and just get permission to screen it. And it's just like dead end after dead end. And it's just like he just doesn't respond to inquiries about that. And so I think that it's just like he's sitting on the distribution rights to it. I mean, who knows? what'll happen i mean he's 72 years old so i i mean we can only expect that he's got uh quite a bit quite a few more years left but after that who knows what's going to happen if like they're Ah. going through things being like oh the distribution rights to basquiat and then we'll probably see it on streamers you know somebody who's just like oh we can make money off this but anyway i i just know that it's not in the hands of any 
organizations that handle these things regularly. It's a it's a wonderful movie. My VHS copy might still be at our parents' house. I I know I watched it a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jeffrey, it's great. I I and I'll be curious to hear what people have to say about the film. Uh, I felt like it can't decide if it wants to be a drama or like a really over the top comedy because mm. that there are some very dramatic moments that happen in it. There's a lot of things that go on in his family life that are very serious and uh, some really incredible devastating moments. And then there's some parts where it's like, this is completely a complete left turn into, you know, wackiness and it's, you know, the form changes for the film, but I, I'll be curious to hear kind of what, what people think once it's out in wide release. I liked it. I, I liked it. I just, you know, that was just my one issue with it, but I, Issa Rae, great seeing her. She's had a great year between that and Barbie. President Barbie. And probably, ten, and probably like 10 other projects that uh, I'm not even thinking of right now. But um, but that also just goes to show you, you know, how far, but also how much further things still need to go for black cinema. But it's like, it's come very far in the sense that, you know, there are these mainstream uh you know, major studio, not to say that American fiction is a major studio picture. I think it's one of the, like the independent subsidiaries, but it's, you know, there are these actors who are all over the place and playing really cool roles. I mean, Jeffrey Wright was in the hunger games movies. I think not the first one, but the ones after that, oh, that he, that he was, yeah. he's in, yeah. he's in Rustin. Uh, we, we've talked about in the past. Oh yeah. Uh, he's everywhere. Yeah. 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 Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wright's everywhere. I mean, like we started, I think shaft was how we started with Jeffrey Wright and then ended up. Yeah, I guess and, so. And shaft brings us back to the black exploitation genre, which brings us back to, uh, Pam Greer <laughs> and Sheba baby. And the reason why, and as I watch this movie and as we're doing our road trip, I'm, I'm, I'm watching these yeah. movies also thinking about like, all right, well, what does this tell us about, about the state or the, or the city? Yeah. And I don't know that I got so much of a sense of like Louisville or Kentucky from this. It is worth noting that the writer and director, William Girdler is from Louisville. We also right. share a birthday. So, Oh, do you really? Well, we shared a birthday. He's he's been dead for quite well, some time. It, that's and that's fine too. Uh, so David Sheldon, who was the writer, I believe he also was from there. Um, and so they they wanted to make it there, you know, because they did have these, you know, close ties to it. Um, also, I think that things were a little bit easier for them because right before they filmed this, there was a massive tornado that really did a number on Louisville. And uh, I think that for this film to be shooting was kind of a sign for a lot of the people in the city that like, okay, the world still goes on, you know, things keep on happening. And hey, talk about uh, exploitation. It's not like they paid any of the extras like in the the fair scene or anything. And that was all (laughs) guerrilla filmmaking. You know, they got the go ahead to just roll the cameras and, you know, that's why, like, you see this dude, I think he's, like, holding an ice cream cone, he just, like, looks at the camera, and it's just, like, 
People are just going about their business and they're at the fair. Meanwhile, there's this massive chase scene going on, which totally rules, by the way. Oh, it's a a great chase scene. The town fair. It reminded me. So that scene brought that brought a memory up for me that I like completely forgotten about. And this is what. So this goes back to uh, 2001, 2002, when I was acting and I was part of a, a children's theater tour uh, through the Southeast. And yes, we did go to Kentucky. No, we did not Ooh. go to Louisville. And I do not believe that this story was from one of our Kentucky spots. But I bit, we have spent a weekend in Lexington, which was lovely. Uh, okay. I think I've won. It's funny because this was all before we all had cameras with us constantly. And somewhere, somehow, I think I have like one picture from being in Lexington because like we I don't know, met all these people and hung out. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it it was lovely. So during that tour at some, this was not a tour of major cities and major venues. We were in a lot of rural areas, a lot of small towns, and we stayed in a lot of cheap motels. And we were staying at this motel and it was like, I feel like I remember it being just like across the field and on the other side of like a hill was there was a fair there was a a fair carnival happening and i remember walking like we just we walked over there and i don't remember all that much about it but i was but it totally was like this like the fair in sheba baby it was like a very you know low budget it just kind of rolls up on a truck and they set things up kind of a thing yeah, yeah, and everyone like when you're a little kid, it's like the best thing ever. It's like Disneyland came to your town, and then when you're oh yeah older, you you know don't want your children going anywhere near anyone running the rides. <laughs> no way. Um, yeah. Which, by the way, was another fun thing I did in this movie. Just kind of like knowing, kind of what having a sense of what the vibe was like on low budget exploitation films made in the seventies. I spent a lot of time during scenes, especially like the scenes with like shark, or like the scene at Pilot's house where he just has like all like the women sitting around yeah looking at their which eyes. scene at pilot's house oh they're oh yeah they oh, there's were one not that, like sober. there's there was that blonde there's like especially there's like one blonde yeah. woman who's totally spaced out so it, you know there's this one scene and it might be one of the first ones where we see pilot but it's when andy sheba's father gets a call from him and he says that he's going to sell and uh, Pilot is laying in bed and he's covered with these women. And it reminded me of, and we in this can go back to our Wayne's World episode, but from the documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization Part Two, The Metal Years, the way Paul Stanley gives his interview is just like in a bed covered with like these three women. And I'm just like, oh no, that, that's Pilot. That's Pilot right there. That's It's Paul Stanley. It's the same person. Just laying in bed, just covered in these women, feeling like they're on top of the world. Yep. Probably a little more true for Paul Stanley. <laughs> yeah. I, I What I really also liked is that this movie takes some twists and turns. I don't want to give away any of the ending or anything, uh, like why there is a really badass boat chase that goes on. But 
because I feel like this is one that people probably haven't seen, or if they have, it's maybe been a while. And I feel like it deserves a either revisit or a watch for the first time because it's really exciting to kind of step into this world of like mid seventies Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, this like, I don't know this. I feel like the story itself maybe was a, a little bit more solid than I think something like even like Foxy Brown. I felt like this one there was, you know, a lot of her movies, at least in this, in this world, you know, are kind of like revenge movies. Yeah. And, uh, and it's really cool to to kind of see her character develop and also the interactions that she has with like the character of Brick, who she, you know, had this relationship with and they rekindle it and everything. I just, I love the way that it's handled. I think that Pam Greer is just totally awesome. I watched Jackie Brown again the other night because I was just like, I, I just wanted to see if I could, especially having watched Sheba Baby, Coffee and Foxy Brown, uh, to see like any of the little like glimpses and things like that. And you know, that movie, which I don't, I wouldn't consider to be as much of like, you know, the same type of exploitation type of film. Um, But clearly there's a lot of reverence for, you know, Pam Greer's history. And uh, she is a very empowered person in Jackie Brown. Mm -hmm. And is the one that's keeping everybody on their toes and is always one step ahead of everybody else. Or is she, or isn't she? We don't know. So in one of the interviews for the podcast, Quentin Tarantino uh, talks about Jackie Brown and how he Uh kind of sees it as like the 20 years later for a character like Sheba and to take one of these, like, oh, really? like that basically like 20 years before Jackie Brown, that Jackie Brown would have been like a Pam Greer character. So and that- she's in, 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 so Jackie Brown, she's a flight attendant who gets involved with some criminal activity. And so uh, you suppose, so I guess Quentin Tarantino is saying well, that. You know, in her past, she has had, you know, some dealings maybe with the other side of the law. Well, I think he was it was was more for him that he couldn't that he was viewing it as catching up, like taking one of those like a character like one of those characters and catching up with them 20 years later. So, uh huh. Yeah. Whether she was a a badass woman, uh Someone who's someone who deals with shady business. But speaking of, of being a badass woman, this is another part mm-hmm. where because so there's all right. So there's the, the sense that, yeah, it's it, they're exploitative movies. There's members of the black Cicely Tyson was very outspoken against yeah. this genre. And but then you also have women, black women going to see these movies and seeing Pam Greer kicking ass yeah. Uh, not even bothering to take names. It's not yeah. worth it. She doesn't need to. She's no one's secretary. So, She's like, what was your name? Walker? Who cares? It doesn't matter what your name is. So, yeah, she hot wax. So, there and like that was the, the the appeal of these movies was that like people go especially women and i was in the in the podcast they're talking about how it's like women would go see it and they'd come back and they'd bring their their sisters, their daughters, their nieces and it yeah. was like a celebration. It was finally we get to go to the movies and see w- really one of us 
kicking ass and and doing the things that like really especially if you were a black woman like you couldn't do them without yeah. consequence you know and and to see pam greer doing it and being so liberated up on screen i feel like and and like you said at the beginning, like we can't speak to the experience of being black or women, right? But I can only imagine. I, I I mean, like, look, this. I always I kind of compare it. I'm like we, the the degree of connection we have to other experiences, of course, depends on our own. So I would say that, like, while it's not comparable and not even the same thing, I remember what it was like the first time I saw like a Jewish character in something that who wasn't like, you know, nebbishy and, you know, Woody like, Allen. it was right. Right. So to see that it was, that was kind of like empowering. So imagine that you are like even more marginalized. And when you yeah. see someone literally kicking down the doors and making people take note I mean, I can only imagine how empowering that must have been oh, just, just to see absolutely. it. absolutely. And what yeah, an escape. Absolutely. What an escape to go back. I mean, like, no wonder people went to go see these movies over and over and over again. Because it's like, oh, man, everything's shit. Like, my job is shitty. And, like, my landlord's shitty and everything. I'm going to go watch Pam Greer kick ass for an hour and a half. And that will make me feel and good. And she does it so well. She's so good. Yes. Well, Dan... I, I feel like this is an impossible question to answer, but we're going to try it because this is what we do on this podcast. So given the opportunity to do something else with Sheba Baby, what would you do? Well, with Sheba Baby itself, nothing. This movie has been made so many times and it's also been done... Sure. More like more recently where there have been some films that have tried to kind of recapture the idea of uh, th like kind of the feeling of, of the exploitation genre. Yeah. So there was the one I'm looking it up right now with uh, Taraji P. Henson uh, a few years ago. And I'm trying to remember what it was because it was really marketed as like her Queenie. Or wait, no, was that it? No, oh. not, not Queenie. I don't think it was Queenie. It, it was Proud Mary. Proud Mary. Even like the Proud lettering Mary, on the poster is, yeah, it's a professional assassin full of guilt takes in a homeless orphan. Uh, and I like the poster. It looks like it's got the same oh, lettering yeah. as Foxy Brown. There was a, a remake of Superfly from a few years ago. And as we've said, like the, the Shaft movies, which I don't think necessarily try to capture the the black exploitation genre and then a couple of years ago we had uh eddie murphy playing rudy ray moore and dolomite is my name my, dolomite is my name yeah so we've got so now we've got the behind the scenes of yeah black exploitation movies so it, it was kind of like the usual go-to ideas here weren't working and and then when I heard Quentin Tarantino describing Jackie Brown and saying this is like catching up with a Pam Greer character 20 years later as they're as they're in middle age and you know thinking more about the kind of second half of of their life 
and I was like, well, damn it, that's the that's the perfect thing to do with with something like this is is to go back and, and catch up with the character. But Jackie Brown, which I love, I love Jackie Brown, huge fan of that movie. I would possibly go as far as to put it in my top three Quentin Tarantino movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a Tarantino. I- and it's one it's it not on not upon first viewing upon first viewing really liked it but multiple viewings over the years it's not one that resonates with me as much i mean when i watched it the other night i think that i liked it more upon that watch than the other watch the other times i've watched it um robert forrester i feel like i have a different appreciation for um pour one out Oh, yeah. he's so good in it, and the sincerity with which he plays the character is uh, is uh, astonishing. He's so good, um, and but I I wouldn't say that the movie as a whole really does it for me. I think that one movie of Tarantino's that does it for me that really is like a a proper look at black exploitation is Django Unchained, right. which is, I think in my top three, probably of his, um, I'm, I'm not the biggest Tarantino fan. I think because as a person, I just don't care for him. Like I just, there's something about him that really, I don't know, skeeves me out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, when I try to look past that, I mean, Django, I think is fantastic. I think Django and glorious bastards and once upon a time in Hollywood are my top three. Uh. And it's, <laughs> I realize also that like, you know, you're a few years older than I am. And really I took note of movies like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown's, you know, a few years, that's 97. Is that yeah. right? It's yeah. only five years so, after Reservoir Dogs, which, by the way, Reservoir Dogs references Pam Greer. They're yes, having it a, does. Yeah. In yeah. fact, she she tells a story in the podcast about how she went to see Reservoir Dogs at a theater in New York City and was like, oh, my God, they're what they're talking about me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It actually Reservoir Dogs comes up in uh, the documentary. Is that black enough for you? Because the dialogue with them at the beginning at the diner, you know, it feels as if it's written for black characters oh that's okay. kind of the analysis of that and i i would recommend people watch that movie on netflix the documentary on netflix to see what it's talking about in a more thorough way yeah yeah that makes sense but yeah so yeah. what would i do with sheba baby i mean like i feel like with pam greer we've I would recommend that people, listen, if you're interested in Pam Greer, listen to the season of The Plot Thickens that is focused on her. Uh, it, it, really interesting stories, things that I never knew about her. Like, for example, she was almost married to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Really? Yeah. So they got together in co- they were in they got together in college and because uh, she DJed at this club and he would always go there by himself and just dance. And he was a really good dancer. So she started dating him. And then when he converted to Islam mm. and he wanted her to like pretty much abandon her career and be his wife. Okay. And be a, a subservient wife. 
and she just and he kept asking her like like are you going to commit are you going to commit have you seen and, any of her movies you can't picture her being subservient but she was like yeah and she just like she couldn't bring herself to it and then it was funny cuz he said to her he's like well if you're not ready to marry me i'm going to marry somebody else who's prepared <laughs> and there was, so there was that that happened and now and it was something weirdly similar happens a few years later when she's with richard pryor so okay. she, so she, she gets so after after the black exploitation genre kind of fades away, she's trying to get roles in movies. She has a supporting role in Fort Apache: The Bronx with Paul Newman, and then she has the role as, as Richard Pryor's wife in Grease Lightning. And right. she said, apparently, like he would, because he, he was uh, doing cocaine and all sorts of shit. And he would, and and actually, she met Richard Pryor initially through the comedian Freddie Prinze, who she dated. Okay, but who she she couldn't be serious with because he had drug problems, and so of course Richard, but Richard Pryor, like she cleaned him up for a while. Oh wow! Like because she gave because she gave him such shit because he like held up a day of filming. Cause he was late and he wasn't prepared and she chewed him out like on set in front of everybody. And apparently that like shifted his behavior and they were like, they dated, they were really close, but he wasn't someone that she could really commit to, even though he wanted uh-huh. to get married. And uh, he ended up like, basically like they hadn't even broken up and he got married to the, uh, Jeez other woman so uh just real quick i want to jump back to kareem abdul jabbar uh and one other thing about him that might surprise you did you know that he was a writer on veronica mars he was like in the writer's room on veronica mars okay (laughs) isn't that so bizarre that's i think he just like loved the show and was like can i write on it and they were just like you're kareem abdul jabbar yeah, come to the writer's room. Like I imagine. No, that's my how name it went is, is Clarence Ovner. I'm I'm the co-pilot. <laughs> so, uh, that's I, so. So I got. That's so, I, I well, something about what you just said about Richard Pryor too. I, uh, I feel like one of the things that you could that you could do now is like a service that's like Cameo, but you just pay to have Pam Greer yell at somebody. To get their act together. That'd be pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Get your ass in Greer. My God, Dan. I know. That was good. Oh, boy. Uh, Or was it? Or was it? I'm going to write that one down. So, you know, like you were saying, the blaxploitation genre as a whole has been revisited recently over, I mean, over the course of many years, it's been, you know, I, I don't know if it's really ever hit in a way that it, you know, was meant to. I mean, uh, Dolomite is my name did really well because I think it was like one of the ways that we were saying, like, it's the return of Eddie Murphy. Yeah. It was a, all in a role, in a comedic role. And it was also like in that, I would say, early batch of like kind of bigger higher profile movies that went straight to streaming so more people could see them yeah and and also it was like you know he did coming to america number two the number two yes 
which reminded me of the number two. Um, didn't but, see it. I don't know. I Oh, you didn't see it. I didn't want, I'm I, like, you know what? I'm happy with the first coming to America and I don't want, you didn't I don't want, want your my childhood, childhood to be ruined. ruined. Oh, oh wow. just like I, I don't need that's a, I feel like that's the first time that we've actually ta- said that on this podcast in that way in reference to ourselves I think yeah yeah but yeah uh, no yeah it's more just like I don't need like I'll watch the new Beverly Hills Cop oh yeah Beverly Hills Cop Axel F yeah. absolutely yeah especially I saw like, Bronson Pin show in that trailer and I was like I'm in saw like everybody was in that trailer Every, like yeah john ashton judge reinhold yeah i didn't see hector elizondo back from beverly hills cop three right paul uh, riser was, paul riser is back paul riser has got to be back was bridget nielsen in there i did not see bridget nielsen <laughs> in that trailer oh i'm trying to remember the name of the villain from beverly hills cop three i feel Ellis like DeWald. it's one Ellis DeWald. Ellis DeWald. Ellis DeWald. That's it. For some reason, I'm like, I feel like any other day I could have accessed that instantly. But, and then, and then I, I accessed it in my mind. I'm just like, why is that name in my mind? It's the villain from Beverly Hills Cop 3. Because Was think, George Lucas in the trailer for the fourth one? Is it, he has a cameo in uh, Beverly Hills Cop 3. That's right. He was does. And Carrie Fisher. That was... Was she the one that he was with in that? I can't remember. Oh, um, possibly. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what? what anyway, do do? Sheba baby. What am I gonna do? All right. So I'd say that, you know, in Pam Greer's filmography, there, I maybe what is it? Four or five movies. We could say, Coffee, Scream, Blackula Scream, Foxy Brown, and Sheba baby. Maybe also Bucktown. I don't know. I don't know if Bucktown really hit the way that the other ones did. But those are like the the big black exploitation films that she did. I'd love to see a Blu-ray release with, you know, a pack of all of those. Um, you know, maybe like a really cool Pam Greer lunchbox that it comes in or something. Oh like, yeah. That, I just feel like, you know, you're right. You you can't do this movie again it's the the plot is too basic and honestly the plot isn't what people are coming to this movie for well and what's up and if i may also add i i I think in part of the plot the the aspect of the revenge film is still relevant we had promising young woman a few years ago absolutely yeah. yeah and i'm you know i'm sure like that that's that's something that will always that will always, you know, be there. And I, I, I felt like, you know, it feels like promising young woman is kind of like a, a spiritual sister to some of these uh, Pam Greer revenge films, not in terms of like, well, she's in the medical field. So there's, there's one thing or was supposed to be in the medical field. Well, so uh, yeah, I, I think that something that promising young woman doesn't have is the like the gorilla nature of the filmmaking that yeah. comes across uh, in these movies, where it really feels like somebody's pouring their heart and soul into it. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that the the best way to do this is just to kind of give it a proper send up in the form of you know higher quality DVDs or sorry, Blu-rays 
and, uh, you know, try and, you know, do the work to get some cool special features on there. And, you know, the, the DVD has the commentary track and it's really just the, um, the, the writer and producer, um, what was his name? Uh, David Sheldon. And, uh, I think, and it's a lot, that's just talking mostly about production for these things. And it's a, it's a white person as many of these black exploitation movies were made by is, you know, white filmmakers, not all of them. Clearly we have, you Gordon know, Parks. Van Peebles and Gordon Parks doing Superfly and uh, Michael Schultz, so, but you do have, right. Michael Schultz. Did he do Cooley High? Did Cooley High. Yeah. Cooley High. But I think that uh, the, uh, I don't know, the, thing, the, the people that we want to hear from are the people who are maybe influenced by these movies, the people who, you know, uh, have kind of carried on the legacies. And, you know, maybe you do have Taraji P. Henson doing commentary as part of this. Well, yeah, and I or would suggest in terms, in terms of the people who were in, inspired by them, Black filmmakers and artists Absolutely. who were inspired by them not all due all due yeah. respect is to quentin tarantino but we don't need to hear I, quentin tarantino a- absolutely i, I mean i really it's... appreciated hearing from him about pam greer and about jackie brown but yeah no i would love to hear from just other the hughes brothers would love to hear if i mean i don't know if if they were inspired by this by well, this genre but I, just as black filmmakers i like, mean well obviously spike lee i mean it's too bad that john singleton is no longer with us because he would be mm-hmm. a really great person to hear from about this um, absolutely in in jordan peele jordan peele in the elvis mitchell documentary there's a lot there's some great interview stuff with samuel l jackson who uh as we said before carried the torch from shaft um, well, and but Samuel also, L. Jackson would, was a, was actually like you know alive and a yeah. you know young adult. <laughs> yeah, and and also and these are also people who were interviewed for this documentary, but people like Billy D. Williams, uh, who yes did a bunch of these exploitation films, but also really made it into the mainstream in like Empire Strikes Back in a role where that was a big movie. Being, <laughs> It was a big movie, but it's like him being black is has nothing to do with the character. And it's it's never, you know, this is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away where there's no such thing as racism. There's just, you know, well, I guess there is if you're not well, Sith. I don't know. It's not it's not race. It's fascism. There's not really it's, it's not it's as fascism. much racism. It, yeah, it's fascism. Yeah. That's true. So and imperialism. I, well, very much so. Imperialism. So uh, I. And, and, you know, James Earl Jones, and there's just so many amazing people that, you know, were part of this world that transcended and uh, at that time, I should say, transcended because, you know, obviously there have been efforts made in recent years to, uh, uh, you know, have better representation in the cinema, but still a long way to go. And uh, I... I don't know, giving this period of time in cinema a uh, a little bit of a, a celebration is something that I think there, it's always a good time for. I mean, yeah, and it, I think about it and you think about the 1970s in terms of what they meant to cinema and these films, it, just being a part of that, 
it really yeah. uh, I, I mean i don't know how you could argue against the 70s being uh the greatest decade in terms of uh in terms of like adv- especially advances in in filmmaking yeah because so much so much just changed and grew by leaps and bounds well also and this is just my personal opinion but even movies that are made more recently that take place in the 70s i just enjoy more because i love the feel of it i love the the cars i love the the just the atmosphere around whatever's going on you know i watched uh the nice guys the other day which i've seen a hundred times before but i just love living in that world for a little bit it's so great um it is and yeah so it is that's yeah i, I and, and and you and it's also an era where you don't have to worry about uh you know oh no my cell phone is dead or i have to, i don't have any service here you don't have to explain away why people can't reach each other instantly so that's always so good. Just people being in the moment yeah people just being in the moment uh well our dear listeners if you have any thoughts about sheba baby or any other films in pam greer's oeuvre give us an email ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail.com dan do you want to let everybody know what we're covering on our louisiana episode oh well of course i do we're going down to louisiana we're going down to new orleans and we're going to watch the big easy from 1987 with Dennis Quaid and Lumbachan, directed by Jim McBride. We got John Goodman. We got Ned Beatty. Thank you to everybody on TikTok and Instagram who voted for uh, the, the film that we're covering on our Louisiana episode. Maybe we'll do that again for another another episode down the line. But it was and really cool just to see what what other people want want to hear, what people are fascinated by. And listen, you know the alphabet and you know what states we're heading to. So if you have a pick that I know I've been talking to some of my friends from Jersey who have certainly let me know their opinions on what we should talk about on that episode. Yeah, Dan and I are from New Jersey and I have a feeling, I mean, because I've also gotten people weighing in about New Jersey stuff. And so that's going to, we might have to do like just four episodes in a row just of New Jersey. I don't. I don't know about that. I feel like I. We are not going to show preferential treatment to any state. It, it. It's a one per state. So if you feel strongly about what we should cover for pretty much anything after Louisiana, I can't off the top of my head. Is it Maine? Does Maine come after Louisiana? I think so. So yeah, I think so. Let let us know what. What movie do you think uh, captures your state and communicates what that state is to the rest of us? Or just as a yeah, good movie? Yeah, I, th- I think that, that once we start getting to uh, like North Dakota, our list kind of narrows down to maybe, you know, one option per state. And so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't, don't think there's too many movies set in North Dakota, but uh, if you know of one that you love, please let us know. Oh, we, we have, I do we have we options in our list I'm, for everything. Yeah. 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 But uh, if there's something that we maybe aren't thinking of or something that, you know, you know, it's like, oh, well, if you're doing North Dakota, you have to cover blank. Then we yeah. want to know. Yeah. Let us know. We just need the movie to take place primarily in that state. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, yes. Dan, as you are being chased on a speedboat, I wish you a good journey. <laughs> good journey. 